I am the first Asian American man to run for president as a Democrat. I am so thrilled to announce to you all that I am running for mayor of New York City. If you think that we need to, again, lower the temperature of the country and realign our leaders' incentives with the general population, then that's the movement that I'm kicking off. Teach us how to become an online phenomenon run for president. The entire campaign was fueled by podcasts slash the internet. Were you like, oh my God, I did not realize that this is how it was going to be. Like, how the heck is this Asian man you never heard of speaking after Joe Biden before Elizabeth Warren? It's like, I'll tell you why. So anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> One good place to start is for a lot of us, including me, you know, I had no idea who you were until a few years ago. And then you were an online phenomenon, right? So teach us how to become an online phenomenon and run for president. How does it happen? So uh, a lot of it's just necessity and adaptation, or at least it was for me. So I declare in February 2018, New York Times story comes out. Uh, and I've made this mistake, by the way, this will be good startup advice. I've made this mistake maybe a dozen times in my career where I think, oh, after this story comes out, then uh, a lot of good things will happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's never been true. Yeah. Uh, but then this time it was like, well, come on. I mean, it's in the New York Times. Like it's about the... Uh, automation, UBI, yep. presidential candidates. Like this time, there'll be like a total uh, wellspring of interest and activity. It didn't really happen. Uh, and so then uh, I was trying to grind it out for much of 2018. Um, and it was like a startup where it's like, first you hit up your friends and family. You say, hey, guys, running for president. And then they say, of? And then I say, <laughs> United States of America, send me $2,800. And at that point, then I'm giving talks uh, to small groups. Uh, I, I remember this point very vividly. So it was 2018. And it turns out that no one cares about a presidential election um, more than two years ahead of time. So right now we're having this conversation in summer 2022. Yeah. As soon as the midterms go, it's going to be all 2024 all the time. Right. But right now, it'd be difficult to get oxygen if someone was running around saying, hey, I'm running for president. People are like, yeah, you know, they don't want to pay attention. So uh, for me... Uh, we went on this tour, the Humanity First tour in 2018, and it was painful. Uh, you know, like I felt so bad for my team because they were literally like packing up our little stage and like I was going to these um, these warehouse spaces in Pittsburgh and Detroit. Uh, and the way that you wind up catching fire is that you just have a lot of iterations of talks that no one ever sees or hears, but you hone a message in a particular way, or maybe you just end up with like a random moment online mm -hmm. that you don't predict. Um, for example, for me, I mean, some of the things people might remember is that like me doing the Cupid shuffle at a retirement yeah, home in I South Carolina that. or yeah. me crowd surfing on a, like in, in, um, that was in California. Um, now at that point I'd already been at it for, you know, upward of, uh, 18 or 24 months. And then you start sensing a pattern where you're like, oh, if I do something that catches hold online, then that'll actually break more press than my going to do all the conventional things. Yeah, something I always admired about you, I think, and this is true for anybody who's not just maybe not just in politics, is you're willing to really put yourself out there, right? Online, especially. And I think I always, because sometimes I think about like, I don't know if I want to do this, it's going to be embarrassing. But I always admire just your spirit of like, I'm just going to go out there and do it and risk it. And, you know, and a lot of those moments have gone viral. Yeah, people respond to humanity and what's called, this is funny, it's like there's actually a political word for it now, authenticity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so now I just made it seem fake. Um, but, but when you're, 
in my case, grinding out a presidential campaign in the winter and the Midwest and whatnot. Uh, so I got advice early on from the chair of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire. Uh, I asked him, hey, you've seen candidates come and go. Like, what advice would you give me? And he said, people can tell if you're having a good time. Hmm. And if you think about that, like how many of these political candidates seem like they're enjoying themselves? Yeah. Generally, very, very few. I mean, it's a drag. It's a, and uh, and so I was trying to have a good time mainly for my own sanity because I had already committed to doing it. So yeah. it's like if you're going to do it, might as well, as well have, a have a good time. <laughs> um, but also another main reason why I was always trying to be positive was that uh, I felt bad for my team. Again, where you're stuck in a rental car. And if you're in a bad mood and you're the boss and there are three people around you in this fucking rental car that like, it's so miserable. They're like, their heads down and da da da. And you're like, you could tell like there's tension. And if someone yeah. says something, you're just gonna like snap at them. And, and everyone who joined my campaign team was doing it for very positive idealistic reasons like it was a, an a yeah, it's not, you're not joining to make billions of dollars right? yeah yeah it was an objectively unwise career move to work on my <laughs> campaign so they're there in the middle of the you know the the of nowhere winter da 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 and so if i'm a dick <laughs> like yeah. it, it makes it much much worse yeah so it's like okay like you know gotta just you know be good spirited yep. uh, all the time and and i will say too that like that people listening to this might, must be like, oh, that like, even that kind of sucks. Where it's like, even after you do the campaign event for the, you know, like a dozen um, people at the coffee shop, then you get back in the rental vehicle and like you, you still have to kind of, you know, Face like have, it. yeah, the, I mean, I, I did go through a whole series of growth experiences and a lot of it does hinge for better or for worse on your team. Because they come around you and again, you're like, oh shit, like I have to make this campaign work or all these people will have been idiots for joining me and following me. And when you screw up, like your team actually takes it worse than you do, which then makes you feel bad for them more than, more than yeah. <laughs> anything yeah. else. Uh, and as the campaign grew, like the people who were excited about my campaign literally grew to, to the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions. I mean you know, uh, 425,000 people donated to my campaign, which is a very, very significant commitment. Um, but, it, you know, it takes a lot to be like, okay, I'm going to take some of my hard-earned money and give to this candidate because I think it's going to, you know, um, be good for me, my family, the community, the country, whatever. Um, so when, as an example, when I did suspend uh, my campaign um, after New Hampshire, like I went to Nevada to thank my team and volunteers there and they were crying. Like the whole thing was like heartbreak. So that there were times when I was supercharged by it mm -hmm. during the high points of the campaign where I'd, I'd get on a stage and there'd be thousands of people there uh, who, who were rallying for for me, I mean, for the, for the campaign. Um, and these are experiences that most people, you know, like, I mean, if you don't go through it, like, it's very, very hard to understand what, right. what that's like. Right. Um, and so you do grow in a particular way. Like the first time, it's actually here in San Francisco. Our first big rally was here in San Francisco. Uh, it was uh, 2019, uh, and I remember we were stuck in traffic on the way to the event, and we're like, "What the fuck is this traffic?" And then we're like, "Oh my gosh, it's our traffic!" Because like, so many people are going to like our rally. Oh my god! Yep. And then yeah. I got up there, and there were thousands of people. It's but all your fault, Andrew. Your but fault. it's such a cool feeling, yeah. right? Like you're stuck in your traffic for people who came to see you. Yes, That's pretty great. Which was a totally new experience, and I got up there and was like, "Wow!" And then you feel pressure finally to deliver again because you know, th three or 4,000 people showed up to be excited by you. And so you're like, oh, well, I, I'd better deliver right. 
Um, and so now I've been in that context where it's like, oh, better deliver, better deliver, like, you know, over and over again. Um, and so you grow from that because when, when I started out, I was, you know, like a fairly optimistic, confident guy where I was like, yeah, I'll figure it out. But, but then, you know, at that point, do you know what it's like to, to, to be on that stage with, you know, yeah. with the kind of thousands? Do you know what it's like to be on a TV d- debate stage and then have everyone, you know, like texting you, uh, uh afterwards and then see an image of yourself and be like, oh my gosh, yeah. like, you know, that, that that's yeah. me next to Joe Biden and, uh, Bernie and whatnot, yeah. you know I mean? Like these were all experiences that, uh, I, for whatever reason, even though I decided to run for president, like I didn't actually like, you know, for example, uh, sketch out all the things that would happen to me if I right. were successful. <laughs> Did you like being in front of the camera being like, have you always been like extroverted people person, uh, that kind of thing? Or, you know, your background education, you know, Brown, Columbia, you, you know, you started companies, you've sold them and it's just I, at no point in that, if you'd like asked me to look at your career path, been like, yeah, this is the person who's going to run for president, right? Like, what about it where you like, you know, front, like camera facing, a lot of limelight on you, your family? Is that something that you are okay with? Or were you like, oh my God, I did not realize that this is how it was going to be? I did not realize that that's how it was going to be. Okay. And I, I said to my wife at a certain point where she was like, hey, are we going to lose our privacy? And I said, no, because right now you couldn't pick out uh, Amy O'Rourke, uh, you know, Beto's wife. So you're going to be fine. Yeah. And there are only a handful of political figures that ever achieve that kind of notoriety. So I'm right. sure I'll be fine too. Like no one's going to care about us or our lives. Uh, which was not quite right, as it turns out. And I remember the first time I got recognized on the street, it was really jarring. And I will say, too, as an Asian guy, uh, you don't really think of yourself as being publicly recognizable. Like I joked in one context, I, I always felt like I had an invisibility cloak as an Asian guy, where if you just wanted to blend into the woodwork. Now, it's hard for Sriram here because he's six yeah, foot I five. I know, I was going to say, that has never been true because the the woman who's standing next to him will be like, you know, they always know, even if I'm like totally invisible, there's a six six Indian man, you cannot like uh, go. It's hard for me to, you know, I think it, it explains a lot of my weird personality, but it's hard for me to hide. It is. It, it, one thing I think, you know, I think of you sort of the first person to do is really harness the internet. Like, I remember your interview with Rogan going really wild. Like, how big was Rogan? How big was those online moments? Because I think that kind I of... I think that year was like 5 million views on that episode. Just one, like a really big phenomenon. It just like broke out. How how big was that? The entire campaign was fueled by podcasts slash the internet. In large part because mainstream press did not particularly want to cover me or the campaign. So the first big hit, and I talk about this in the book, was Sam Harris. And this was in 2018. And uh, that conversation ended up driving, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in small dollar donations. It got me on the stage in this Iowa event. And so not being an idiot, it was like, okay, like what other podcasts are like Sam Harris? It turns out that there are very, very few (laughs) podcasts that are like like Sam Sam Harris. But one of the big ones uh, was Joe Rogan. And by the way, Sam was the one who got me on Joe Rogan. He's called Joe and was like, hey, you should have Yang on. And then so I sat with Joe and to your point, Arthi, that one blew up. Um, And that was February 2019. I will say to you all, too, that my team was like, hey, uh, not to put pressure on you, but this is kind of... It's a big uh, deal. It's kind of important. (laughs) (laughs) Don't mess it up. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get you all nervous now, but just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that. but that's really what the... 
endeavor was like, where your team was like, hey, this was, you know, sort of high stakes. Um, but after the Rogan podcast, that then I started getting recognized in the street uh, and by, you know, really diverse groups of people. Um, that was February 2019. And then the first Democratic televised primary debate was June. And then at that, at that point, it became mainstream where if I was walking around anywhere, people would say, Yang, you know, with you, this and that. And uh, my wife started saying, like, I can't take you anywhere because like, like it, it would end up, you. yeah, it'd end up slowing us down, whatever we were doing, because obviously I would just, you know, chill out and take selfies with whoever wanted them. Um, so, th- but that was that, so that was another growth experience that I, I, I for whatever reason, had not anticipated, uh, despite running for president in part, because, you know, I had like a range of outcomes in my mind, but like, I certainly wasn't like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be famous for sure. I'm going to be like, I, I kind of, uh, had, accepted uh that public humiliation was the most likely outcome but not public humiliation in a way that's like oh there's yang and he you know like screwed up it'd be more likely to just be oblivion more more likely that you know just no one ever really uh paid attention mm-hmm. yeah i mean i know you're a pro wrestling fan in pro wrestling right like there's multiple kinds of heat right you know you can get you can say it's great for people to cheer you keep get people to hate you what is not good for people to just ignore you and forget you that's not a good thing right like uh, so it's okay if, i think people make fun of you um you know i was watching andrew schultz's uh, new comedy special uh, infamous i don't know if you watched it and he has a joke in there about i want a president who can move merch right uh, that's going to be the bar and you know i was thinking about you like the math hat right like it, there's something about that and you which seems to connect with people and maybe a certain demographic of people what do you think about you connected because i don't think it was the establishment candidate persona it was it was a lot of people who just maybe not part of the mainstream but something about you connected with a set of people what was that what made them go out and buy those hats and merch yeah, so thank you for everyone who bought a math hat. We did sell $3 million worth of math hats. And we have some math questions for you, by the way. We want to quiz you on. <laughs> uh, worth of merch. But I, I think that there was this uh, humor uh, and communal spirit that built up around a math hat where you wear a math hat and then someone would be like, well, why are you wearing a math hat? But then someone else would be like, yang or like math and, you know, be excited. Uh, and there was this appetite for a logical, reasonable, rational approach to our politics that has eluded us. I mean, frankly, it's eluded us since. Um, and, and I joke about it being like this kind of lost tribe of rationality that overlaps very heavily with tech, very heavily with business, very heavily with, uh, you know, Asians <laughs> of various kinds. Um, but uh, the, I, I joke that that it's, is itself a tribe, it turns out, you know, and, and, and that tribe maybe reflects like 10, 15% uh, of people. And I think that's why the math hat took off is that it was actually a very, very clear sign that like, this is actually a different approach to our, our politics or policy. Yeah. It, one thing I've always been curious about you is like, so you, you do the presidential campaign, then after that, you know, a little bit of time happens, then you do the New York campaign, and now we're doing forward. How do you have the energy to kind of like go from one thing to another, you know, because even just for you personally, like, you know, just the ups and downs of a campaign, the energy being on the road, it must be a lot. Like, how do you get yourself motivated out on the road and be like, okay, I'm going to go take one more swing at this? Well, thanks for asking. Um, so I declared for the presidential in 2018. Um, and then I grind, grind, grind. And then there are like incredible highs down the stretch. And then the campaign ends. In early 2020, so you imagine two years of being publicly facing on the road. By the end of that campaign, I was wiped out. I went home. I started uh, a, an 
nonprofit org called Humanity Forward to lobby for cash relief because I had still all this following and energy around me. I said, okay, I still need to advance the vision and the mission. But then COVID hits. We all go home. We're all Zooming and whatnot. I reconnect with my family. <laughs> you know, my, my uh, young boys have got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old now. They're a bit younger then. Um, so 2020, I did have some recharge time. Uh, you know, I think it was impossible for any of us to do much other than Zoom, yeah. uh, like Zoom during, during that. and and in my case, I did write this book, so yeah. I, I would write all. It's better than banana bread, which is what most people, most of us did. I think. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, so that, and but the the book was meant to answer the question: Why do I still feel so terrible about our future, or like why do I still feel like American politics uh, are, uh, you know, corrosive and and broken and dysfunctional? Um, so I finished the book in 2020 and at the end of 2020 I have this big decision and you, having read the book you see that like I, I conclude um, that the two-party system is actually designed to fail it's going to polarize and inflame and agitate uh, not deliver any meaningful policy uh, and it's going to become increasingly incoherent it's going to lead us to strife and, and violence and civil war so I conclude all that at the end of 2020 and but it still has to be like okay like what are you going to do next and the end of the book I conclude, look, someone needs to start a third party, forward party, and I'm probably one of the most logical people to do it, so I guess I'll do it. Um, and then the choices were start the, th well, I had three choices sort of, like try and agitate for a job in the Biden administration was one, uh, start the third party immediately was two, uh, or run for mayor of New York City, and then if I win, I start the third party as the mayor of the biggest city in the country was was three. And so of those three, I chose number three and I said, okay, like I, I'm going to, and my thought process on running for mayor was New York City has a municipal budget of 90 to 100 billion. And if I can increase or improve the efficiency and allocation of a hundred billion dollar budget by 5%, then it's like $5 billion worth of good. So if as a human, you can do $5 billion worth of good a year for four years and you have no choice but to do it because you know, you're an asshole if you don't do that. Um, but also I thought, if I won, I could launch the forward party and then everyone would be like, well, like mayor of New York's forward party. So, I mean, it's immediately very, very real. So then I, I run for mayor and to your original question, uh, um, Sriram, that campaign was very, very draining and arduous. I mean, it was winter, it was COVID, New York City, uh, you know, crime ended up being number one issue. I personally consoled numerous people who'd lost loved ones during that campaign. I mean, it was extraordinarily draining. Uh, and then I lose. Uh, and so coming off that campaign, I'm wiped out again where I'm like, <laughs> like, 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 okay. I wonder because, you know, for any of us, right? Like, you know, um, we hear athletes talk about this, like losing on a public stage has to be painful. And, you know, and in some ways, a lot of people listening to this might be dealing with setbacks in their professional lives. And, you know, none of them was public as you know, LeBron trying to losing in a final or losing campaign. And, how do you process that mentally and how do you be like, all right, I'm going to get myself up and, you know, go do this next thing? So the the mayoral campaign ends uh, late June of last year and uh, I'm very tired and I'm also uh, uh, still trying to process the, the loss. And I mean, I had a lot of crazy experiences during that campaign. Like, uh, you know, my, my aide was like shoved down a, a flight of steps. People like, you know, like, I mean, like there are people with me who had to take medical breaks based on like doctor's orders. <laughs> like it was a very, very stressful. Is, is this just because the dynamics of New York politics or? 
So, so the truth of it, so I said to an aide down the stretch of that campaign, I said, how many violently mentally ill people do you think we've encountered over the last number of months? And then he said, you know, one to 200. And I was like, yeah, it seems about right. Like we, we, I mean, I personally intervened in one attack, you know, when like someone was. In the ferry. Some, yeah, on the ferry, someone was like, you know, beating the photographer and like, uh, you know, like I, I had many very, very stressful experiences during that time. Um, so, uh, when I, I came off that campaign, one of the things actually that forced me back on the trail was that I had written this book that makes a call for a third party. And after my campaign ends and I'm, you know, wiped out, I'm at home. And then my publisher calls me and is like, hey, uh, we want to publish this book and we want to publish it as soon as possible because frankly, you know, it's current and, uh, you know, we don't want it to sit around on the shelf uh, or, you know, or we want to get it on shelves. Um, so I said, okay, it was as soon as you can publish it then. And they said, October 5th, can you be ready to go on a book tour October 5th? And I looked at the calendar and I was like, well, shoot, that's like, you know, a few months right from now. now. So I should be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, so I said, yes. And now did I, you know, among us right now, like, did I, was I really that fired up to go on that book tour? It's <laughs> 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 like, no. Um, but, you know, like, but again, I mean, at, at that point, um, I'd been called to perform so many times when I did not feel like it <laughs> over the course of the previous years that I was like, sure, I'll like, I'll just soldier up and do this thing. Yeah. Uh, and then happily over the intervening weeks and months, like I just kind of snapped back to my myself. So like I kind of recovered like uh, during the, the book tour and the building of the, of the forward party. But I will say, and I've talked to folks who've lost these campaigns that have been down in the dumps for months and months and months. And I kind of understand it in the sense that if you didn't have something that kind of forced you back out there, then like I, I can see them just being like, what the heck is next? And I know friends who are entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley who go through versions of this and like, and you you go to them and you, you, you know, you do get it because when a company fails, you really put your all into it. And then when it, it's very hard to just turn around and be like, okay, on to the next thing. I mean, like it's much easier said than it done. It messes up your psychology and you just have to like psych yourself up onto the next project and just find the motivation to go do something else. Yeah, so th like entrepreneurship, a lot of forms of art and creativity, a lot of forms of politics, it just requires you to put yourself out there and draw on your spirit in a particular way. And so there's a certain form of depletion that accompanies that if it doesn't go your way or if you've just been doing it for too long. Um, so I, I really do feel that very, very deeply. And and one of the things I will confess to you all that I kind of enjoy is that um, to your question, I feel like from the outside looking in, it's like, okay, Yang just got gone from, you know, running for president, running for mayor, building the Ford party. I'm like this, like, you know, Terminator. Uh, and, and, and that's something like I enjoy yeah. in part because like, I, I feel like, frankly, this is like a very, very punitive, unforgiving uh, political and media environment. And they're like looking for reasons to get rid of you in some light, especially in a case where like right now I'm, I'm starting a new party that's going to challenge this existing duopoly that we all know listening to this, like, yo, this duopoly, it, it doesn't make any sense. And it's not, you know, it, it's uh, broken. But then if you say, hey, I'm starting a third party to solve it, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of resistance. I mean, I, speaking of, uh, you know, just the media and coverage there, one of my favorite articles I read about you is titled Random Man Runs for President. And uh, it basically covers in great detail all the omissions, both accidental and intentional, by media when you were running for president, 
you know, everything from like the first debate where they just like left you out, lots and lots of like coverage issues and all of that. Have things changed from like media coverage, especially now, like, you know, through the running for New York mayor to like now this uh, forward party um, has is mainstream media or just media seeing you differently now? You know, I've been through different chapters where the media is concerned. So when I was running for president, there was definitely some suppression going on. And I know this for a fact because an MSNBC producer came out and said after she left MSNBC that I was on a list of candidates. She was told never to have on air. (laughs) So so if you hear that, you're like, all right, there's definitely, you know. I I remember, I think maybe one of the debates, you had this fourth wall breaking moment where you were like, hey, you know what? Like, this is more like a TV show. And, you know, we all, we have makeup on and we're all playing our part. And I remember that very well because it felt like you were now kind of rejecting the system that everyone else had bought into. Yeah, we. I was trying to find a way to break through and also make use of the limited time I knew they were going to give me. So, And so I said to my team, I was like, these debates are bullshit. We're just up there uh, with makeup on and these rehearsed uh, attack lines. lines. Yeah. And then they were like, ooh, ooh, say that, say that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right, you guys think that, that, that's going to work. So I'm very happy to because that's the way I feel. Um, so, so there was that version of the media. And then after the presidential campaign, CNN signed me as a contributor. Uh, I was trying to get Trump out. So I, I'd endorsed Joe. And then I was very much like media friendly. Like, like at that yeah. point, everyone would be like, sure. Yeah, yeah. sure. Like, da, da, da. Like, you know, let, let's. I remember seeing you with Don Lemon and Como and back when Como was back on. Um, okay. So I want to talk about the party. So I think the student thinks one is you know, the part, the, you have a bunch of interesting issues we want to get into, like, you know, um, ranked choice voting and open primaries and social media. But maybe for the listeners here, why a third party? Because to be candid, like the history of third parties in the US has been mixed at best. And maybe other countries are different. So why a third party? Uh, so uh, I want to speak to all the entrepreneurs and operators out there. Uh, what do you think the approval rate is for US Congress right now? Like, what do you guys think it is? And he might know because he might have read the book. So I'll put you on the spot, Arthi. What, like, what, what, do you, what do you think the She's approval rate of, for U.S. Congress is right now? Um, I don't know, like 30, 40%? It's a fine guess. It is 20%. It goes between 15 and 25%. It's very, very wow. bad. What is the re-election rate for individual members of Congress? I'm guessing really high. <laughs> yeah, I'm anchoring you high. So yeah. what, what do you think? I'm going to go with Arthi again. What do you think? Um... I don't know, like 75, 80%? 94%. Oh my goodness. It's what? a better win rate than the Durant Golden State Warriors for this, this sports <laughs> science. So, uh, so then you look at that system, you're like, wait, what? Like, and imagine if you were a business where four out of five customers were like, oh, this is terrible, but it's like nothing's going to change. Uh, and so the reason why you have such a high reelect rate is that 90% of the congressional districts in the country are either Democratic or Republican, blue or red. And it's completely a foreordained conclusion who's going to win in the general. Mm-hmm. So if you get through to the general, you you win. Right. The only way you can lose your job is if you get primaried from within your party. Mm-hmm. From the left, from the right. From the left or the right. Yeah. So you have distorted incentives because you don't need to deliver for 51% of the population. You just need to make it through your primary. Mm. And your primary... Uh, and so I'll just speak on the Republican side. If you can imagine the most extreme Republican voters in Missouri, Arkansas, upstate New York, wherever it is, like they tend not to reflect 
uh, normal public opinion. Like it, it's people that are very off on on the, right the extreme. Uh, on the left, there's a similar distortion. There are various special interests, like teachers' unions and various like like other orgs that are that have their hooks in are like, hey, hey, you know, d- like don't change, don't change. Um, so if in this system. If you decide to lean forward and compromise, uh, then you actually decrease your own job security. Uh, and Republican senators have said to me, an issue is worth more to us unaddressed than addressed. Hmm. Because if it's unaddressed, then I can just complain, yell, raise money, get uh, votes and say, like, look, I'm fighting for you without ever actually having to lean across and do it. If I compromise and do it, then I'm ideologically impure. I compromise with the enemy, uh, you know, and then I get primaried. So, th- so this is in a nutshell why our political incentives are so bizarre that it- it's uh, rewarding for them to not solve a problem. Uh, and then you have media organizations that are separating us into ideological tribes, compounding the, the polarization. And then social media pours gasoline on the whole thing. So uh, you have to ask yourself, listening to this, hey, is this system going to get worse or better? And everything says it's going to get worse. 42% of Democrats... And Republicans now view the other side as corrupt, immoral, and a threat to the country. And that percentage, by the way, is rising uh, as well in real time. Um, So the conclusion of this is going to be genuinely violence, strife, civil war. People aren't going to, even in 2024, and I can talk about what's going to happen in 2024, uh, you know, you're going to have tens of millions of Americans who are, are going to be ready to dismiss or challenge whatever the election results are. And people think when they hear that, they think, oh, like Trump would totally claim victory even if he didn't win, which by the way, he would. And that's true. Um, but you also have many, many people on the Democratic side who are like, look, like if Trump wins, he's going to lose the popular vote and it's thus Ill- illegitimate, you know, because like he would have just won based on the Electoral College, Electoral College is bullshit, blah, blah, blah. So uh, so the, the system's breaking apart. And uh, if you want to fix it, the main ways to fix it are to change the incentive structure I just outlined, where instead of just having to placate or please the 10% most extreme partisans on one side or the other, you should have to answer to the general public. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? What you do is you replace the closed party primaries with completely open primaries where anyone can vote for anyone of any party and then decide it via ranked choice voting. So the winner has to get a majority of support uh, as opposed to right now, you have candidates winning with like, you know, 32% of the vote because there are four candidates, et cetera, et cetera, which by the way, is another way to, that's why, that's how Trump won. If you l- reflect on the 2016 Republican primary, he was getting 40, 45%. And then the other six candidates were divvying up the other. So it looked like he was crushing because it's like 40, you know, it's like yeah. 40 to 12 or whatever. Yeah. Um, so then you ask if you're smart and you're like, okay, then like, how hard is it to change the primary system? And the answer is, Pretty fucking hard, mm. uh, but not impossible. And uh, one state, Alaska, actually made this change in 2020. The cost was $6 million. And you immediately saw the effects when Senator Lisa Murkowski uh, became the only Republican senator who voted to impeach Donald Trump, mm. who is also up for re-election this year. So think about that for a second. Her popularity among Republicans in Alaska plummeted to 6% approval. Like the Republicans and any, any Republican who voted to impeach Trump was genuinely uh, suicidal uh, professionally and politically. I mean, of the 
10 House members who voted to impeach Trump, six are already out. The seventh, Liz Cheney, is going to lose her race by 15 to 20. So why the heck did Lisa Murkowski vote to impeach? It's because she doesn't have a party primary anymore in Alaska. So it just went straight to the general. Right. And by the way, half a dozen Republican senators have gone up to her and said, like, I so badly wish that we did the same thing so I don't have to deal with the the primary. Right. Um, So they did in Alaska for $6 million. It turns out that 24 more states... Uh, have ballot initiative measures where if you just get enough people and frankly enough money, yeah. um, you can try and change the incentives and liberate our senators and legislators to be rewarded for doing reasonable, rational things as opposed to just being in a corner. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the what do you what do you think? I mean, I, 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 for this this I, might I, be I, I, a, so. I think rank choice voting is amazing um, for a bunch of reasons. I think the number one is that you know it's not all or nothing. And I think it sort of brings in centrist candidates uh, across the board. Yes. Uh, which I think is a really good thing. The second thing I is... I also think it's like, I think it's healthy to shake up the incentive system, like you said. Yeah, the think. incentives are messed up. Yeah, right totally now, you get in up. there and clearly, like, all you got to do is... There's no incentive for you to actually fix any of the problems. Yeah. A lot of it is to just, like, yell, complain, and fundraise. Yeah. And, and that's basically it. And so anything that shakes it up, I think, is generally healthy. It also, I think, stops the rich get richer. Do you know Vitalik Buterin, the founder of uh, Ethereum? Yes, um, yes. So Vitalik wrote this great post on um, quadratic voting, which is really like ranked choice voting. And he's been pushing for a lot of it in crypto for exactly the same dynamic, right? Uh, in fact, I think actually he actually mentions he, you he once. He actually replies to you. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. I, I think uh, because he's been trying to push for it in crypto governance for very similar reasons. I mean, not you know, there are different political dynamics, but the idea of like, hey, you know, uh, and there's a version of quadratic voting where you get like a fixed number of points or money and then you can allocate that, which may be too complicated for elections right now. But you can basically say, hey, you know what, I want to give all of my points to say Andrew Yang or can, or I want to give 20 points and so on. Uh, maybe on the third party system itself, I guess one critique of third parties in the past and which is like you ran as a Democrat, you know, it probably safe to assume a lot of your supporters and base are democratic, is that it could wind up, you know, if you're a Democrat, you'd be like, hey, is this going to hurt the Democrats more in, you know, in all politics, as opposed to being a truly central force? Which seems to be the most common criticism of recent, like, you know, for the last couple of days or so. Yeah, which which again, like, it's, to me, positively bizarre, given that you can just say, hey, if you're so uh, concerned about a spoiler effect, just implement ranked choice voting and problem solved. Then people can vote for whoever they want. Like, let's say, you know, Yang. And then just rank, let's say, the Democrat too. And then no harm done. You guys control everything. You can just switch to ranked choice voting tomorrow if this is an actual problem. The thing is, they don't want to solve the problem. Because if they look at it, they say, hey, what we're going to do is we're just going to try and uh, suppress any competition uh, and so we'll pretend that there's a spoiler problem, even though we could address the spoiler problem just by changing the voting system tomorrow if we felt like it. Uh, and the the reason why it needs to be a third party is let's say you listen to this and say, okay, Yang has convinced me that ranked choice voting would be an improvement and that not like nonpartisan open primaries would be an improvement. Um, so, but do you need a third party to do that? Um, so the ballot... Uh, the ballot initiative that passed in Alaska is now on the ballot in Nevada. Nevada is controlled by the Democrats. Democrats looked at it and concluded that this would open up the system and introduce new competition for them. So they came out against ranked choice voting. Um, now, is there a principled reason for them to do that? No. It turns out that the Nevada Democratic Party actually uses ranked choice voting in their own internal processes. So they understand it very well. 
Um, but they came out against it because their consultants told them, look, this is like bad for your election certainty because it might introduce like, you know, a, a new entrant. It might mean that people can vote for someone new. It's not like, hey, like us or nobody. Uh, and so then they had to construct a rationale and the rationale was it's too confusing for voters, which obviously garbage. Like, you know, <laughs> like they're, so you need something from outside the system to reform the system, because even if you like one of the parties more than the other, neither of these parties will adopt true incentive reform because it's bad for their political interests. Mm -hmm. You know, and and anyone who knows anything about organizations know that they're not going to do something that's like any organization. Um, I'm curious. You went through uh, rank choice voting for obviously the New York mayor mayoral race. Uh, how does it change the psychology or the dynamics of who voters? Pick because it's kind of interesting to think about. Okay, I you know I I I like you know this person as my top candidate. Great, but how do they wind up picking the second, the third? How does how has that changed? So first, the rank choice voting system in um, the mayor's race was within the Democratic Party primary, which is an improvement, but not really like what you need. Uh, and I can illustrate this by saying when, when I was running for mayor. Dozens of people would come up to me on the street and say, Yang, you know, love you, want to support you. Like, you know, when's the vote? And then I would ask them, it's like, are you a registered Democrat? And they would say no. And then I would say, well, then you can't vote for me because you would have need to have registered to vote as a Democrat four months before the election. Oh, wow. uh, and like, why do they make that rule so hard again to, to suppress the vote? Um, uh, something like 11% of New Yorkers voted in that Democratic primary. Um, and so they, they, you know, I mean, 11% is pretty low, given that that decided the whole thing. Um, and, and so ranked choice voting within a primary is an improvement, but not really the sea change you need. Now, if you're running within ranked choice voting, even within a primary, here's the conversation that and how it changes the dynamic. I would say, hey, I'm Andrew Yang running for mayor. And then someone would say, oh, I'm with, uh, you know, Ray McGuire or whatever it is. And then I would just say, rank me second. And then they would look at you and be like, I hadn't thought of that. Maybe yeah. I will. <laughs> Tell me more. And, and so like it, it became a thing where uh, you could have a meaningful exchange with anyone, regardless of whether they were in someone else's camp or, or not. Oh, wow. And I think it also shakes up the entry of new people into systems and which may be trapped by certain incumbents. Well, ranked choice voting by the data has been shown to help women candidates uh, and uh, candidates for minority communities. Mm -hmm. Because if you just have the straight, current, um, uh, archaic, first-past-the-post voting system, um, it's sometimes harder for those candidates to get a majority vote. Yeah. And, let, and you know, uh, and that that's, you know, this is documented fact. Uh, I also happen to think that women tend to be a, a bit more natural coalition builders uh, and collegial, where you might look at it and say, you know, it's like, this person would be fine <laughs> kind of thing. And, and right choice voting tends to Favorite, advantage yeah. those, those types of candidates. And then again, this is all in the data. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, you're, a, you know, you're a founder. What does success look like for the forward party? Is it, you know, um, like five years from now, what would make you look, this was it. I mean, is it getting ranked choice voting and open primaries everywhere? What would success look like? Oh yeah. I mean, it's sort of fun. So I, I hope people appreciate this about, uh, my my background is that I'm not someone who dreamt about holding political. Like I don't really give a shit about any of that stuff. I'm just trying to. Solve. Your high school yearbook tells tells me that you know you didn't dream you're going to be in politics someday. That's right, and you can check it out. High school yearbook photo. I'm like uh, in flannel. I was uh, into grunge at the time. So uh, so I, I'm now 
the co-chair of the third biggest political party in the country by resources. Very exciting. And we have all these goals and deliverables. Um, right. So everyone's all obsessed about the presidential. I'll return to that. But uh, so at the local level, there are 506,000 locally elected officials from uh, county execs, uh, school board members, yeah. uh, all the way up through state legislators. Uh, we think we can get 5,000 locally elected officials uh, under the forward party banner um, by 2024. Um, we're on the ballot right now in four states. Um, we want to be on the ballot in 15 states by the end of this year, uh, 35 by the end of 23, and then all 50 by the end of 24. So by the time 24 rolls around, anyone can be vote be for a forward party. States. Yeah. So th that's a lot. We're launching a national tour in Houston, Texas, September 24th. Um, to help get us on the ballot in various states. So that's at the local level. Then there's the congressional level. And I, I want to draw everyone's attention to a candidate uh, in Utah uh, named Evan McMullen. Have you guys heard of Evan? No. Uh, so uh, don't, don't worry, Arthur. Most people have not. So Evan McMullen in 2016 saw Trump's rise and said, hey, this is not acceptable. Like uh, we need to find someone to run against him. Um, frankly, out of the Republican Party, and then no one would do it. Uh, and so Evan decided to do it. So Evan was a CIA officer for 11 years, uh, went to Wharton, moderate guy, uh, ran for president as an independent in 2016. Most people did not notice, but he got 20% of the vote in his native Utah. He's also Mormon. He's now running for U.S. Senate in Utah against a Trump-endorsed incumbent named Mike Lee, who is texting Mark Meadows during like January 6th, like, how can I help? He's like, you know, he's like that, that type, like mm -hmm. Trump, he's like, he's a Trump guy. Mm -hmm. Utah is a state that Republicans won by 21 points. Mm. So everyone would think Trump guy wins. Right. Evan McMullen's running as an independent and he managed to convince the Democrats of Utah to not running a candidate. So you wind up just with an independent versus the Trump Republican. So the 39% of Utahns who voted for Joe Biden will probably vote for Evan because they're mm -hmm. not going to vote for the other guy. Right. And so the question is, can Evan McMullen peel off 12 of the 59% who voted for Trump? Right. Who are Mitt Romney types. And so I, I'll ask you guys, like, do you think that he can get 12 out of the 59%? It looks like well, it, right? I, I think, you know, I think there's kind of like a desire for a more moderate centrist approach, you know, in pretty much all things. So, you know, I, I feel like, you know, the one thing which I think will resonate a lot of people here is a frustration with being polarized and pulled apart. Yeah. So, yes. So right now he's neck and neck with Mike Lee in the latest polling. I, I uh, donated to his campaign. We're backing him. So when people think like, hey, what the hell is your third party going to do? What I'm saying is, look, there's an independent U.S. senator who's neck and neck and if he wins, he could be the 50th vote on either side as early as January. Right. There's a chance we get another senator or two. So you could have the forward party have the key votes in the U.S. Senate as early as, you know, January, January. 23. Yeah. Um, and this is very common in other countries, like, for example, the U.K. or actually even in India, where you do have third parties which are swing votes, have, are able to influence the agenda through, through yeah. similar mechanisms. Yeah. Yes. So... Right now, are we piling in behind Evan McMullen? Yes, we are. Am I campaigning for Evan? Yes, I am. Are there a couple of other Senate races we're also trying to help? Like Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, who her opponent too is a Trump-endorsed uh, lunatic. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't call everyone lunatic, but this person's not great. 
Um, <laughs> so the, the, the delta between like a moderate sane Republican principle voted to impeach Trump pro-choice versus the Trump endorsed loony, you know, that's like a very big delta. And the, the thing that I'm going to suggest is that Democrats right now will not lift a finger to help either of these candidates because they don't have a D next to their name. Like Lisa Murkowski still has an R next to her name. So, you know, they're, they're going to be like, oh, let's let, let Alaska figure it out. Um, so we're going to help Evan. We're going to help Lisa. We're going to help some other candidates. And then some of them, uh, I think, will be uh, in position if they win to be this fulcrum. So we're taking a shot at uh, those races, at congressional races, at this ballot initiative in Nevada I talked about. That's enormous. I mean, we're uh, trying to raise and spend $12 million on getting the message out in Nevada because the Democrats are going to, you know, kneecap that thing. Right. Um, so local races, level one, congressional races, level two, very important, including U.S. Senate. And then... What the heck's going to happen in twenty twenty four? Which yeah. is what which is what everyone yeah, goes just, to immediately. Yeah. yeah. What is the yeah. what, what, what is your prediction for twenty twenty four? Yes. Okay. Here we go. So we're hearing that Trump declares later this year, probably in September, before the midterms. Uh, he's his opponents will be Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Mike Pompeo, uh, maybe Larry Hogan. Uh, and he rolls through that crew because he has 50% of the base. The other ones will split up the other 50%. And, you know, you have Trump coming up and the Republican Party. Sad, but true. I mean, as you can tell, like, I, I think Trump's terrible. And like, I, I do not want to see that man be president again. By the way, his second term would be infinitely worse than his first term if he were to get back in. Because this time he'd just bring in total sycophants and uh you know loyalists and there wouldn't be like the kind of frankly like normal <laughs> like republican operative run um so on the democratic side uh, a lot of concern about joe biden um but from what we're hearing from within the white house is that joe wants to run again and that uh health permitting he will run again particularly if trump is coming up the other side and then if joe's running then all the other democrats will fall in line immediately because if they challenge him then they're aiding trump so the likely matchup right now as we're having this convo is Trump-Biden 2, the sequel, uh, combined age 159. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. uh, and if you're laughing, I mean, this is the absurdity of this two-party system in action. Like a country of 330 million people and like it's these two guys again? Like they didn't get better over the last four years. And 58% of Americans don't want either of them as president. So if you are us and you look at it and say, well, like, what does it take to actually run a third party presidential candidate? And the answer is ballot access in all 50 states, which costs approximately $40 million uh, to get and a lot of signatures and legal work and a lot of other stuff. And it's like determined state by state. Mm. Uh, but you can get there. Right. And then you can have your own nomination process where people in tech, in business, in politics, and in, in, in arts, like you know, we could have like a Matthew McConaughey type, like any anyone from any field can actually participate, throw their hat in the ring, and say, "Hey, I want to help the country," and then we can actually decide ourselves as a people which of them we want to put forward. It, may, it might be two of them. You might end up with like you know a moderate Republican type and a moderate Democrat, and then advance them uh, as an alternative ticket. Now, everything I've just said is contingent upon a lot of things happening. You know, it's like, you know, Trump and Biden, you know, could have health problems tomorrow. Like, you, you don't know. But right now, this is the way the landscape is laying out. Right. Okay. Um, and for your, you know, looking at forward, what would you, given that you've been through this in 2020, the whole presidential election campaign, everything, what would you do differently this time around? 
Well, well, for one, I, if you look at it, like my goal with the forward party would be to have a whole slate of candidates. Yeah. And so like my role in many ways, because I have like been through a version of it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like I, I want to create a process that people would be super excited about. And I'm going to give you all an example. A political party can nominate their own candidates however they want. Is there some ironclad rule that you have to start in Iowa and then go to New Hampshire right. and then go to Nevada and then South Carolina? No. And I will suggest to you all that th- that order does not make much sense. I think that you'll find a lot of sympathizers for on lo- why, all sides. Why doesn't it make sense? Just curious. Well, like, so, I mean, not not to, you know, be a jerk about it, but Iowa is 94% white. New Hampshire is 91% white. You know, right. I mean, the only thing right. states aren't that really diverse. doesn't really represent the demographic. You know, yeah. like, that they're, um, they're not uh, representative of the economy uh, of the country. They're not represent, And these are states I spent a lot of time and a lot of friends there like them. But, like, you know, this rationally you would not necessarily say, you know, it's going to be a litmus test like this state. Um, and so if you were to design it from the ground up, which we would have the opportunity to do, right. maybe you would include a place like California, like early on. Uh, and maybe you would make it so you could vote on your smartphone and mm-hmm. then uh, confirm the vote via a postcard that gets sent to the mailing address you give us that we confirm via public records. You get a postcard, you scan the QR code and they say, hey, congrats, your vote has been verified. No waiting in a line at a high school uh, you know, you can see the votes get tabulated in real time. I mean, you could have a genuinely modern, inclusive, democratic process to choose who your presidential nominee is. It would run rings around the other parties because they would be stuck, you know, like doing this weird calendar and weird process in like the middle of nowhere, frankly. Right. <laughs> While millions of other Americans are like, you know what, I kind of yeah. prefer this process. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, by the way, these candidates are actually much more interesting and dynamic and representative than like the than whatever the heck like the the duopoly is going to yeah. put. I forward. always found weird the sort of the narrative that happens about oh you win in say in New Hampshire Iowa then you have momentum you whether you have momentum or not leading into say you know the Super Tuesday and so on which sounds so bizarre when like half the country's primaries haven't voted and so on that always kind of this sort of insular institution. Yes, and it was something I was trying to figure out. Jerem was like, why? What's going on? And by the way, this past cycle belied the entire process where Joe Biden finished fourth in Iowa, maybe fifth in New Hampshire, fourth in Nevada. Like he was getting wrecked in all of the (laughs) early states. Uh, And then he won because uh, Jim Clyburn in South Carolina endorsed him and then all of South Carolina got behind him. And then the establishment, Obama started calling Pete and Amy and other people said, get out and endorse Joe. And then everyone fell in line because it it was just Joe or Bernie at that point. Um, but it just showed it's like, hey, if this Iowa, New Hampshire uh, system is working so well, like they did not choose Joe Biden and Joe Biden wound up uh, in, in, a, um, in the White House. So the, the, the current process doesn't make any sense. So a lot of your what you want to do is like process changes from the ground up. Well, just just do things that make sense. You know, like, uh, like at, at this point. You know, so I'll give you another example. Like I spent months in Iowa campaigning. You know what percentage of Iowans participated in the Democratic caucus uh no uh i mean i'm anchoring you low so just guess a low number 15 percent. that's a fine guess rt okay. six wow. <laughs> yeah so and also caucuses are this, laughing. and caucuses are the super weird mechanism which are its whole other thing you know it's not like what you would expect um Okay. I would not have guessed 6%. That's no, so, really I mean, dope. when you start flipping the rocks over, you're like, wow, does this not make sense? Wow, does that not make sense? So, like, the, the, there are all of these archaic things baked into American politics that are primarily about control. 
Right. First and foremost. So it's like when you talk about the momentum that's supposed to uh, attach, it's really most of it is is media driven. Right. The media is supposed to coalesce and determine which of these candidates they put forward that they've approved. Um, you know, I want to talk about something because I think in the book, you know, it, the, the forward party, you know, you talk about a few things you want to accomplish. And one of the things you talk, spend a lot of time talking about is social media. Yeah. And, you know, and I obviously, you know, somebody's worked in social media and I'm like, oh, Andrew, you got me right here. But like, you know, I, mean, I think, <laughs> I, you know, I, I have thoughts on this, but could you give me your take on just the current state of the union of all social media, maybe especially Twitter, and then I think we can take it in a bunch of directions. Yeah, so uh, the problem, and you know, it's like I, I don't blame the people who work um, at these companies, but the the problem is just that all of your market incentives are around maximizing engagement. So, like, what the heck is going to maximize engagement in just about any of these domains? It's going to be uh, something that's uh, kind of uh, inflammatory, ideological, um, argumentative. I mean, I try and keep my Twitter very, very deliberately positive, optimistic. Uh, you know, lightly humorous and and, and whatnot. Um, but I'm the exception, frankly. I mean, like, I, like I, I can very easily just go to one camp or the other and then just see like them being like, yeah, like, you know, look at what that person did. Isn't that terrible? Help us defeat them. Like, you know, like, I mean, that that's like the stuff that works the best in politics. I, I know that when it just comes to content, you know, it's similar where even for something as banal as like, you know, what you're going to name an interview, it's like, well, I could name it something like, you know, just like two people talking, or I could name it like this person, like sticks it to that person. We call it the good time show. We're like, well, you know, you're mandated to have a good time, right? That Those are the rules. Right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so Twitter has its own, own dynamics and mechanics, uh, Facebook, uh, TikTok, different ones. Um, uh, but all of them now are giving people uh, essentially like a different version of the news, a different version of what people think. Mm -hmm. And then if you're on Twitter, you think everyone thinks like whatever the heck you're seeing on Twitter and it's totally not the case. I mean, you're seeing like a narrow slice of a narrow slice. Um, and so it's really difficult to get people to converge on facts and reality because you've splintered the American consciousness into a thousand different mini Fashion. channels. Yeah. And I grew up in this country when there were only three TV channels. And oh, by the way, they were pretty much identical in terms of the way they treated the news. It was just like, you know, Tom Brokaw, like, uh, right. you know. Like, and that's uh, the way it was. Right? Yeah. Yeah, was yeah, it just gets <laughs> up and then I'd be like, oh, which, which like dignified white dude do I feel like listening to tonight? Like him or Peter Jennings, you know? <laughs> There's been like, because I feel it's been narrative shift because if you look at the uh, Obama campaign in 2008, right? Like I think it was the internet and social media was seen as a positive force. You know, you take it to 2010, 2011 when the Arab Spring happens and the internet is seen as a positive force. So something seems to change from then till now where, you know, so I guess what do you think changed from then till 2018, 2019? Even by the way, you know, on both sides, you have people who do really well on social media. I think AOC does, you know, um, uh, you, you do really well on social media. AOC does really well. There are folks on the left and the right. What do you think changed from the Obama time to now? So first, this is not just an American phenomenon. And uh, I interviewed a political scientist who said that, look, adoption of social media is now negatively correlated with democratization in countries or around the world. Uh, which is not good news, obviously, but uh, and and so the the simplest way to understand it that someone else said was that uh, social media ends up uh, challenging institutions. And so if you were so back in the day, we were like, yeah, that's great, like you know, a whole new like myriad of voices. Mm -hmm. right. um, but 
as time I think has passed, uh, that that institutional erosion has started to affect things like vote totals or, you know, like vaccines or right. <laughs> whatever the heck the, you know, the, the, uh, topic du jour. the topic du jour yeah. is or the message or like, you know, the government priority or whatever it is. Um, and so it's not, you know, it's happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere that social media gets widely adopted. Uh, you know, what are the countermeasures? I mean, it's very, very difficult, but I think a lot of it does revolve around trying to change the way that people get rewarded. Um, because, you know, as soon as you, you get in there, then you start trying to maximize and optimize. And then, you know, like if you come, uh, with like a minority viewpoint, you'll actually generally build a following quicker. Cause like, then some people will go to that and be like, oh yeah, I found someone who's going to say the thing that I wanted them to yeah. say. And I knew it. <laughs> I think what happens with the algorithms is, uh, you know, we used to call this, uh, I think back at Facebook, you know, uh, veggies versus dessert, which is, um, you know, I think people want to see more of what they believe in. And, you know, a lot of these algorithms are, you know, are trying to give you more of what you agree. And I, I, actually, there's some great research where if you try and show somebody an opposing viewpoint, it actually polarizes them more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it firms uh, them up in their, yeah, in their, know, in their well, camp. Through that. Um, and I think there's a fundamental challenge between trying to build any product where your customer says, well, I want that. You're like, great, I'm going to give you more of that. Versus some measure of, well, we're going to show you something which you may not agree with, which is right for you. The challenge, I think, is this then dovetails with, for example, right? Like, I would suspect, like, somebody like Rogan um, and somebody like Lex Friedman or all these folks are successful because of social media and YouTube and Twitter. And, you know, so you need these divergent voices which the institution don't bless, but then you have that. So I think it's kind of like this complex problem across all boards. So, for example, you, you mentioned vaccines. The counterpoint to something like you know some of those issues is you had the CDC, a lot of people banned people of social media platforms when they said, hey, the virus came from a lab, right? Which may or may not have happened, but maybe people shouldn't have been banned. And so I think, I don't know where it all collides, but you know these things are in tension and they oppose each other. Oh yeah, I, I agree with you. And you know there are a lot of the folks that are in the alternative space that I love and appreciate and I'm friends with. And you know, and in some cases, when I'm on the outs with the media, like I'm in that, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in that camp. So I mean, so I was going to ask you, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, the the job uh, the job of who runs Twitter may be up for grabs. And if you're not doing forward, and if you're suddenly Twitter CEO, what would you do? So the, the tough part is, so the, I think there's some things you can do that everyone would agree with. It's like, hey, you know, can you try and um, uh, police bots and fake accounts? Sure. Uh, can you try and uh, get rid of like foreign interference? Yes. Can you, know, can you try and have people verify their identities at a higher level and maybe privilege people where you like, you know what their actual like name is as opposed to the anonymous accounts because that might improve behavior? Um, but I, I think the toughest part about it is that a lot of things you would really want to do would end up um, reducing revenue and profitability, uh, you know, at the at the margins. And so if you're like a company that needs to answer to shareholders, like whether private or public, you know, you can't go and be like, hey, guys, you know, time, time for us to do things that are going to wind up. I think some of that is true, but I you know, if you talk to any of the execs in these big social media companies, and, you know, I used to work there, we have these friends, like, they actually don't want the extremist stuff, right? Like, that stuff doesn't make money. You know, advertisers don't love it. Nobody loves it. It's a distraction because all the governments want to come down on you. Like, if there is a world where 
any switch mechanism could magically Magic wave wand, a wand yeah. and remove like you know any charged political speech and it's only about like hey you know what shampoo do you want to buy today what movie do you want to watch today? they would love it right because it, it, the i think one of the challenges is like some of these things are an opposite each other for example if you ask people to upload their real identities right there are other countries in the world where your real identity being tied to your social media platform might mean that you come in real danger um and how do you then have freedom of opinion when you can't cannot can't do that uh, or often when people talk about fact checking you know we saw it in covid or etc right like what is or isn't allowed is up for debate so th- these things kind of tug on each other and um and so so i think that's where the real rub is and i i know like I don't think it's so much the profit and revenue motive because trust me, like none of this stuff makes money. Like none of the political stuff makes money. The, it's the DTC products. It's the brand advertising that makes money. It's these values tugging on each other. Yeah, and and I'm someone who generally thinks that people should be able to say what they want. Right. Uh, you know, like that. I I, th- I think one of the problems we have is that somehow people see speech that they dislike as uh, harmful or even violent. And, you know, that's not the way I was brought up. I was brought up in like the sticks and stones era. <laughs> you know what I mean? right. um, but then the, like on, on social media, then some of it, the, it becomes like a very difficult line drawing problem, um, which is one reason why, like, I don't envy the CEO of Twitter because like, it seems like a very difficult, thankless navigation of like a dozen strands that are pulling in, in opposite directions. Uh, and you know, any choice you make is going to anger someone. I mean, the conservatives too, like they come and say, hey, you're censoring conservative content. And I look at them and be like, I don't think that's really like the primary, it's certainly like, uh, it doesn't strike me as, uh, um, I, I th- like to me, the primary problem I have is that it seems to be negatively affecting our kids' mental health. Uh, and like, it's making people anxious and depressed. Uh, as it's particularly pronounced among teenage girls, for example. Like that to me, it's like, okay, as a parent, like let's, let's freaking home in on that. Um, and I, I wish that if you were a member of Congress, like like that's the um, the priority that I'd be seeking, as opposed to saying like, "Hey, you like made my ads like less visible." Yeah. Right. Um, you mentioned bots, which I think might be an interesting thing to you know actually AI. So in your first book, you know, you talk a lot about AI and you know what that could mean to people just finding good jobs to work in and that time to UBI. So what is your take on, I'm curious actually, you know, what is your take on UBI in sitting here in 2022? Because that's kind of how you first came on the scene. I'm pretty sure a lot of people thought of you as the UBI person for a period of time. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, that there have been versions that have been implemented even in the last number of months uh, where the enhanced child tax credit is the most mm-hmm. direct. And that objectively was uh a massive upgrade for millions of kids who are struggling in poverty. Something like 240 economists signed a letter saying we should keep doing it. And of course, American politics being what it is, we stopped doing it uh, at the beginning of this year. Um, I, I mean, I saw a number today about how Americans who were millennials or younger, um, which is up to age, I think 42 now. I mean, it was 1980. So right. uh, sadly, you know, I'm an elder millennial. It hurts. Uh, that is painful. <laughs> sure, I'm sorry. Um, but that the total level of uh, household net worth that's held by that group is something like 6.7%, something ridiculously low, where we're setting people up for massive um, downgrades in quality of life, which, by the way, drives political unrest and a lot of other things. I mean, when I was growing up in this country, it was like, American dream, you're going to do better than your parents. And everyone thought that. Uh, today, the odds of you doing better than your parents are 
below 50-50, which uh, I'm going to suggest is a way to really get people pissed off and like ready to, it, which is, by the way, one reason why you're seeing these political, uh, uh, you know, destructive tendencies is everyone's casting about for a solution to the fact that their way of life is declining. Um, and they, they actually do not right now, this is like the toxicity of the two-party system, is that they do not have a genuine alternative. The only pressure release in the entire country around that discontent and anger is the presidential election. Um, because again, you're trapped in a system where it's like, well, I know which party is going to win my congressional race. Right. Uh, like, uh, like I have no way out of this mess except for one election, which is the presidential election. Um, that's how you got Trump in 2016. That's how you may get Trump again. Would you, uh, would UBI be one of the themes that you would like, you would, you would talk about with forward? So if, so forward party is now, you know, people can hold different priorities and values and be, right. and policy viewpoints and be part of forward. Um, if I were to be the candidate again, like, would I make cash relief like a, a big deal? Yes, I would. Um, but there are going to be a lot of people running on forward who are running uh, totally different things and, are, and don't have that viewpoint. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, one of the things which changed, I think, 2020 now is just like world events have shifted, you know, in Russia and uh, Ukraine. And obviously now, you know, as we're recording this, China and Taiwan. Um, if you were president today or maybe in the years going forward, let's talk about Russia and Ukraine. Like, how would you handle it? How would you? you yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that one's uh, tough because I, I was so disgusted and angry by this Russian invasion. I mean, there are people getting brutalized and killed. There are millions of refugees. Uh, it was just such like a blatant act of, uh, uh, of aggression for no other purpose than, you know, like, uh, really trying to recapture the glories of a, uh, of an empire that, that in my mind, like it had already been in the rear view mirror for decades. Uh, I think that this administration did an effective job by going up to the line, uh, and helping, uh, and without, setting troops directly into harm's way. Uh, anything we could do to help Ukraine, I would do, um, short of saying, hey, American troops are going to go into the theater. Do you think it pushes Europe and US? So one of the things you used to talk a lot about, or you still do, is nuclear power, right? Thorium and thorium building thorium reactors. And, you know, it seems to me like, you know, with what's happening in the Ukraine, a lot of Europe is like, hey, maybe we shouldn't rely on Russia to power our lights. And do you think that's going to push Europe, maybe the rest of the world into nuclear? I hope so. I mean, you're, you're right that Germany and some other powers, uh, you know, have had a hard time separating themselves from Russian oil. Uh, and that's not positive for uh, stability. Uh, it has tightened up NATO relationships very, very significantly. Um, that we're in a, an era of institutional decline, and that includes international relationships where even America's closest allies, in part because of our dysfunctional politics, they look up and say, hey, you know, like, can I count on you, really? And then, like, if you have a Trump-type figure again, it's like, yeah, are mm -hmm. they going to stick to whatever mm -hmm. the heck you're telling me now? Mm -hmm. So then they start to hedge and they start to build other relationships. Uh, my friend Ian Bremer, who's a geopolitical analyst and author, I mean, he coined this, like, G0 world where it's like you have no center of gravity. Um, you imagine this U.S.-dominated mm -hmm. uh, global landscape that that's really uh, receding pretty quickly. Uh, so we've benefited from this world order uh, immensely. I do think that we've made excessive military incursions in various ways and, and done things that are, are uh, objectively bad for both the American people and our soldiers and, and the world. Uh, but 
I, I would want to try and invest in like the most important relationships to try and preserve what's left of the American world order. What about the other big country in the mix, which is China? I mean, as we're recording this, you know, Taiwan yeah, issue China. seems to be... Yeah, and I have family in Taiwan. I mean, like a lot of my family, honestly. Wow. My, my, uh, including my dad, who I need yeah. to go back and visit. This oh, summer. I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, it's, how would President Yang, you know, handle China and Taiwan? Or just China in general? No. Uh, right now, a lot of the political incentives uh, are driving us towards uh, increased tension uh, and competition with China. Most people project something of a, a cold war. Um, and one thing you, you don't want to do is get to a point where it, it becomes anything close to open conflict with Taiwan being the most uh, likely catalyst for conflict. Um, so I, I'd want to try and manage that uh, as much as I could by bringing the temperature down, trying to maintain very open communications with China, even in the face, which by the way, has been the, the case with in other times in American history where you could be uh, directly competitive or, and even in a cold war, but you could still just pick up and call them and make sure that you don't have a miscommunication that, that goes terribly. And unfortunately right now, from what I'm hearing, like the US and China are not really uh, communicating, uh, e even in the, the way that you would think that would always be the case, regardless of whatever else is going on. Um, so that would be my take on it is, look, uh, it, it's the two most important countries, most important relationship. You have to try and maintain that relationship, even if there are, uh, yeah, even if there are, are major, major contentions and uh, difficulties, like in, in a particular moment. Yeah. Uh, it's also interesting because I think in some ways, one thing which is kind of maybe coming from the Trump administration is uh, when you think about TikTok, you know, all the questions about what what does it mean to have Chinese influence run companies operate at scale in the US? Uh, and, and some of that stuff is genuine and some of that stuff's just racist, honestly. You look at it and you're like, wait, that dude, what? It's just like, like, like they'll call something a Chinese company and you're like, wait, what? Like you look at it and be like, so as far as I can tell, like a person who came from China you know, 20 years ago is, is like one of the founders or executives of this. So that like makes it a Chinese company like like, like that. That stuff. I mean, TikTok, that's that's a genuinely Chinese company like that data is getting pumped through to Chinese gov gov government. I'm, sh I'm sure. I mean, you might know better than I do. Um, uh, no, I, I think. But there are other companies yeah. that get painted with that brush and you're like, that's that's just racist. Like you just there's a Chinese dude <laughs> somewhere right. around and right. you're like, called oh, right. it a right. Chinese company. Uh, India has gone pretty hardcore about this. India has actually banned, I think, TikTok. All and, Chinese apps, right? Yeah. Like uh, from the App Store as such, from Google Play Store. It's, you know. So it's funny. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I guess, I guess uh, um, be a little more lighthearted. But like my team got me on TikTok um, X months ago because guess what? Like, you know, I'm like something of a, a public figure. So like, you should get a TikTok. And then I'm just like, oh, okay, I guess I'll do some TikToking. Uh, and then at the time, like uh, the whole time, my wife and I are laughing, being like, hey, all this, this, uh, you know, shit's going to. <laughs> <laughs> they have all your bad dance moves. But, but uh. you know, I think going back, like, talking about TikTok as an example, you, you uh, kind of pioneered this unconventional social media strategy, you know, in 2020 when you're running it, like nobody else had that plan. And, you know, by the end of it, you could see like other candidates start to like replicate what you'd like started. How much of it was like intentional in the sense of like this internet movement? Like you're one of the first political candidates to like really leverage the power of the internet, not just social media as such. 
um, and just go with that? Like how much of that was like, yeah, internet first as an approach? You know, my team started laughing the day they discovered that I was so memeable. I, I do remember this because we we're just like trying different things. And then someone's like, Yank and meme. And then the, the, the people started creating memes. Right. And so the, I think the best thing you could say about me and my team was that when something was working, we would... Just double down on yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> we would try to go, go after it. Yeah. Um, and there, there were times, I'll tell you a random story. It might not be entertaining, whatever. So like, you know, so my team would just be like, what else can you do? What else can you do? <laughs> <laughs> like I was some kind of you know, uh, uh, whatever, like carnival yeah. performer puppet or whatever the heck. What are the skills you have right, for this talent show? Yeah, it was. It was like, I started calling it like the presidential Olympics. It's like, oh, today I'm going to throw an axe at the wall. And like, I mean, I did throw an axe at the wall and, you know, I was, right. turn, turns out I was a decent axe thrower. So anyway, there were different things. When when did the edge for politics start? Like way back then? Was it like the champion of change by President Obama or like 2011? Was it then? So when I started interacting with various political figures, uh, I thought to myself, these people are not that great. Right. And that it, 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 it did not reassure me. It was not like, okay, these people have it under control. It was right. like, as far as I can tell, these people are like- This person? Yeah, this person. And, and like, and I mean, especially the fields that you all work in. Yeah. The people you work with are natively probably like more intelligent and talented than like most of the political figures. Well, we like to think so. We'd like to think so. I mean, oh no, I'm pretty, I'm pretty <laughs> confident. I mean, so most of the political figures uh, like are just responding to their own political incentives. It's by the way, one reason we're fucked is that like these political incentives don't lead us to happy, you know, joyous problem solving. It just leads us to rancor and rage and you know anger, the, the rest of it. Yeah. So when you say the political itch, it's like I, I met all these people and I'm like, huh, like this is giving me a bad feeling about, yeah. <laughs> about what, what's coming. Yeah. Uh, you, one of the things I think, one of the parts of the book I love is, you know, the behind the scenes of all the debates, right? So you're up there with, you kind of see the public persona, but then you see, so how was it to kind of, do you have any sort of shared brotherhood, sisterhood with all these people? Because you're like, we were out there debating and, you know, once the lights are off, you're actually friendly. I'm friends with a lot of the folks uh, that I, I was on the trail with because you're with them in the middle of nowhere. Sometimes the debate stage, sometimes just a random uh, union hall. Like I would speak before or after a candidate dozens of times. Uh, so like I saw Cory Booker all the time, you know, like I, I spoke before or after Joe, like, uh, you know, a dozen times. There was one joke I told. I was in Iowa and I came out and, and said, like, how the heck is this Asian man you never heard of speaking after Joe Biden and before Elizabeth Warren? It's like, I'll tell you why. So anyway, who's your least favorite person to kind of debate with when you're up against somebody? Well, so the, the, the debate dynamics, um, they're, they're really very predictable in a certain way. And so what, what I mean is that all of the candidates were instructed never, ever have an exchange with Yang um, because... I'm I'm below most of them in the polls. Uh, so any interaction with me is a loser for them. Um, so anytime you interact with Yang, just get off it immediately. Um, so there's no one who really had an incentive to stick it to me. Now, I'll give you a different example. Tulsi Gabbard went up there and was like, I'm going to shiv Kamala Harris, and that's going to be my mission for this debate. And you could see her do I was, by the way, standing between the two of them when they were doing it. And so, like, you know, so Tulsi's like, I'm just going to go after it. There was never any political upside to attacking me in a debate. Now, that switched in the mayoral. In the mayoral, it actually became the opposite, where it's like all the upside was in attacking me for a while. So then, like, you know, it was a different experience. Uh, but because of that, you know, like most people on the debate stage actually like had no issue with me at all. And if we did get into an exchange, they got off it as quickly as they could. Wow. 
Um, so interesting, like just being complete outsiders, just seeing the debate from somebody who's like been there, the process of it. Like, you know, we'd watch it on TV and it just, it's, yeah. it feels like a soap opera. Like you just can't like kind of crack it on like what the dynamics are, but you just, you don't get it. It is very, very media driven and, and network driven. The moderators, by the way, the moderators have already planned out certain narratives and questions with certain campaigns. So that like that, that stuff, I mean, it really is made for TV. Um, but it's one reason why if you were to do it genuinely, um, you would want to set up a debate stage or a process that's, uh, you know, more fair. Uh, frankly, uh, and what what would that look like? Like, what if you had to redesign the entire debate system? You could wave magic wand. Oh, by the way, this is something that we should totally fucking do in this cycle if we decide to go down this road. Um, but it would be, hey, how about I ask all of you the same question and then just record a response, and then anyone could like watch it uh, independently of this debate. And then if we wanted to, we could do like a follow up question for each of you. You could like show little things and like I, I try and do something substantive. Um, as opposed to just playing out a script, um, you know, try and dig in and understand what, what people's issues are. I, you know, one of the things that drove me crazy was like, we, we'd talk about healthcare, every debate, and it's like, none of this stuff's ever going to see the light of day. <laughs> like, like at that like, point, every, you every, think of it as like, what is the point of like me talking about healthcare? Like, this is so futile. Like, is that, what's the thought process that goes in your head when, you know, the anchor, they ask like a question and you're like, oh, come on. Like. Oh, and, and this is the thing that I consistently got too, is that like the, the moderators would ask me questions that were meant to just try and sideline me as quickly as possible. I don't remember this one debate where it's the most blatant, but uh, they took forever to ask me a question. And when they did, they said like, um, you know, uh, Andrew, what would you say to Vladimir Putin on your first call? Or like, does that have anything to do with me, my campaign or anything? No, it's just meant to just like, you know, throw me and stick it to me. And so then I said, like, I tell him, I'm sorry, I beat your guy, which drew a laugh. And then I said, but here's what I'm actually like, like on a campaign on. Yeah. So like the, the media could really, uh, but like the, they, did they know about like Kamala's like attack on Joe during that one debate? It's like, sure. They like served it up to her. Like that they, they uh, actually like play a massive role in orchestrating like the, the way those things go. I, I really remember your thousand uh, dollar movement because I think the they debate. kind of hijack and created like, a, it, it's probably one of the more creative uses of the debate format I've seen. Like how did that come about? Yeah, so as it was, that was the Houston debate. It was either the third or fourth. And my team was like, okay, this debate's going to suck because the ABC team is just going to ask all these very boring questions. It's going to be like, no one's going to remember anything from this debate. So the only thing anyone's going to remember from you is going to be whatever you say in the opening. So what do you want to do with the opening? And then I was like, well, what could we do? That's like thematically on the campaign. And this is after I gave the makeup fourth wall answer in the previous debate. So I was like, what can I do that's going to break the fourth wall? in my opening that is on theme for the uh, campaign. And at that time, we'd already started giving people money and I loved it. And they were like, hey, this is the best. And so I was like, let's just give people money. Uh, and then the team was like, well, looked into it. And it's like, hey, can we do that? Can we do that? Uh, and then that's the direction we we chose. But it, it did end up being this thing that pundits attacked mercilessly the next day being like, oh, Yang's a joke now. Like, you just da 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 and then, by the way, we got like a million new email addresses and like we're number one, like, uh, wow. you know, the, the rest of it. And then after we released the numbers then they flipped and we're like, OK, maybe that was, was a I was in a group of uh, digital marketers and everyone was, was like from a CPA yeah. cost per acquisition <laughs> perspective. That was actually really smart yeah. and uh, well done. Yeah, yeah. No, seriously. I mean, for me, it's like the framing is against uh, a tech startup and top of the funnel acquisition. And you just basically use the moment 
to get like yes you know. <laughs> that's the way i thought of it too it's like this is the best freaking opportunity to like acquire yeah emails and the rest of it yeah so a lot of our audience are you know people in the tech community founders ceos so if you you know this is one of these broad pithy questions but if you had like a message for silicon valley the founders and ceos of the companies watching this like what would it be outside of of course go support forward etc but what would it be more broadly um I set out I set out down this path to try and solve the biggest problems I could um which I think is something that drives a lot of people who are listening to this right now. And the way I break this up is that there are uh problems that the market will reward you for solving, which is a lot of what's happening in tech. And then there are non-market problems. And the non-market problems are getting worse and worse because our government is just, you know, floundering more and more. Nonprofits often can't solve them. Yeah. And so it's driving us all to despair, really. Like the the market driven problems actually like are get, in some cases are getting so much uh, money dumped at them that like you know the efficiency and the financial rewards for solving those problems goes up and up. And then we get more and more distance from the non market problems and try and separate ourselves from them. I mean, you guys are new parents, so you're about to encounter a whole suite of. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm in San or Francisco, so we've so. been told. Yeah. Yes. And and so what what I would urge people listening to this to do is to say, look. Like totally cool if you're solving a market-driven problem because that's what you know most of us do, but invest in solving one non-market-driven problem and then lean into that. Um, and so the non-market-driven problem I'm trying to solve is, in my opinion, the problem that precedes a lot of the other problems. So it's like our political dysfunction precedes our government's inability to actually address homelessness, education, poverty, like whatever the heck the problem is. Like in this political system. They can do absolutely nothing. They keep their jobs. It does not matter. There's no accountability. Here in San Francisco, you know what happens is that a lot of people just vote with their feet. It's like instead of waiting for San Francisco's government to get its act together, you're like, oh, I guess I'm going to peace out, which is unfortunately what a lot of your friends are doing. Yeah. You know, so uh, so I'm leaning into this particular problem. If you want to pick this problem with me, please do. Like, you know, get my info from uh, Sriram. Go to forwardparty.com and let's fucking fix this problem because this to me is like the problem that's going to drive all the rest of it. Uh, but if it's not, you know, fixing our, our broken political system and our government's incentives, pick something else and just go after it hard because the people listening to this can like if you guys don't solve these problems, like they're, they're not going to get solved. Right. No, it's true. Yep. Man, I, I love your energy it's and passion for just fixing just, things. It's just really inspiring. You know, I read your book, The War on Normal People. It's just really inspiring because, you know, you started out like you called a lot of us like normal people, which we are. And we didn't, you know, you didn't expect to be in the position that you are in. And for us too, like when we think about like tech and what it's done for us, it's provided us upward mobility and all of that. And so for me, it's just like really inspiring to see you come out of the left field and take this on as a challenge and do something that everybody would thought it like, oh, that's crazy. Like, that's just not going to happen kind of thing. And it's just what an audacious kind of problem to go take on and do. So it's just really inspiring. Oh, well, thank you. It is like a startup. And I, I'm going to suggest to you all, too, that if you were to look at a system that's ripe for disruption, it's definitely the American political system. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have this creaking, broken duopoly that is 160 years old, 62% of Americans want an alternative to. I mean, imagine if you had a trillion dollar market, two providers, and then 62% of people were like, I want something else. Yeah. Then you'd be like, hey, let me start the something else. What are the barriers? The barriers are 
ballot access, the barriers are media suppression, the, the barriers are resources. But for entrepreneurs, these are all surmountable. If you have 62% of the population on your side, in- including, by the way, a lot of the smartest, best resource people. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, one last question. I think we asked a lot of people this. You know, let us say at the end of your career, decades from now, you know, you're old guy on your, you know, and looking back, what would what would you need to have done to be like, okay, this I've accomplished something? I, I know you're talking about forward. Would you want to be president? What would you have to have done? Well, first, let me say affirmatively, I would be 100% happy to die without ever having been president of the United States. <laughs> like, it's not like I have some, you know, soul deep the yeah, desire yeah, to like hold I, a particular I, I office. I really just don't care. Because I think, because I, I remember watching this interview, it's not the same thing, you know, for like Chris Paul, right? And somebody asked Chris Paul, and it's not to equate like the NBA championship with the president of the United States, but he's like, you know, do, would you feel incomplete if you don't win a ring, right? And it, would, would you feel like, you know, if you never won, if you never became POTUS, would a part of you be like, man, I was so close? No. Uh, so the the way I approach my own uh, time and energy. So first, I am a parent. I've got two boys who are nine and six. And my goal, I tell a joke, but my kids are not very rugged. So if this country goes to shit, like they're not exactly going to be, you know, like thriving in the <laughs> Mad Max <laughs> universe. You know, you know like, like, <laughs> like they're, um, so I, but that that's personal. It's true. Um, my goal is to do my utmost to advance human civilization, solve problems, drag us forward. Uh, I ran for president. Most people believe I helped mainstream universal basic income as an idea, which was my purpose. And I came away feeling, okay, like I did that. Um, but I came away also despondent about our future. And, and so like you looked up and said like, hey, it wasn't like I still don't feel like I solved this problem. Um, now I'm taking on a very difficult problem set. Uh, but uh if by the time I expire, people say like, hey, Yang uh, tried to make the most of his time that he had to have as positive an impact as he could, that would make me very, very happy. Um, it's not about, and I think most entrepreneurs know this too. It's like not about like, oh, I need my company to get to like this or that, which by the way, we do set those goals sometimes. And, and, you know, and then often if you get there, then you're like, hey, that didn't exactly, you know, like do what I thought it was going to do. <laughs> like, like, like it wasn't like mission accomplished, just to kind of go on to the next thing. Right. Um, so uh, I, I'm more about uh, maximizing my contribution, whatever that is, uh, than I am saying like, hey, I need to, you know, be president of the United States or something like that. Man, I love it. I, uh, you know, I just want to say I, all, your patriotism, you're willing to grind it out and just work so much at this. It's always been inspiring. So, so awesome. Yeah, this is great. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks so much. Time. Yeah, it's such a joy. I highly recommend good times to anyone because it's genuinely a good time. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. And, Thank and you. for people who want to check more of Forward Out, what should they do? Give them a call to action. Yes. You can go to forwardparty.com, sign up, make a contribution at any level. Just raise your hand and say, hey, enough is enough. Let's fix this thing. You can also go to andrewyang.com and uh, see what I'm up to. There we go. All right. Thanks, Andrew. This is a blast. Thanks so much. Thanks. You can also buy the book forward where I try and break this shit down. But, you know, (laughs) it's a great book. Highly recommend it. All right. (laughs)